0: Let me mention another show that I, I think really calls out what makes Peabody different and it was Beyonce's Lemonade and so the process that, that that we're talking about here in Deliberations is we're not comparing Beyonce's Lemonade to Adele or some other Drake or some other uh, and which of these is the better music piece. Instead you end up talking about Lemonade in terms of pain and redemption and family and history and community and the things that the artist is trying to articulate in their work. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, the deliberation is not, is this the best new album or video of the year? It is, was this a moving piece of material? And it gets talked about in those terms precisely of its power. And I think that's what that deliberative uh, process draws out. In the smorgasbord of we have all these different things, you don't talk about it was the best. It is the best in terms of its broader themes about humanity.
1: Hi,
2: this is How Do You Like It So Far, a podcast about popular culture in a changing world. And I'm Henry Jenkins.
1: And I'm Colin McClay.
2: And this week we're talking about the Peabody Awards. I've been honored for the last seven years to be a jury member for the Peabody we're lucky to have some of my buddies as we like to call each other, in the studio to talk about what it is, what the Peabody Awards are, what the jury process looks like, and from there to think a bit about where television is at today. So we're joined today by Jeffrey Jones, who is the director of the Peabody Awards, by Marcy Carsey, a longtime television producer of shows like Cosby, Roseanne, The Seventy Shows, and others. And Lorraine Ali, who is a television and media critic at the Los Angeles Times. We're not going to be sharing any information about who's winning the awards or even hints at it because no awards have been decided yet for this year. So don't read anything we say as individuals as reflecting a collective statement of, uh, of approval for any given property. So, Jeff, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about what are the Peabody Awards? How do they come to be?
0: Peabody Awards were uh, created in the late 1930s uh, and came into being in 1940. uh, As a recognition of the popular medium of the time, radio, the National Association of Broadcasters reached out to the Pulitzer Board, and Pulitzer was not interested in uh, expanding their categories into this medium. And so uh, the awards through hook and crook were created at the University of Georgia in 1940. And you have to think about the late 1930s, you know, radio was extremely popular, but it also was looked down upon, often seen as a a mass medium that had quiz shows and Amos and Andy and the Green Hornet and lots of things that weren't seen as certainly respectable, which we're going to hopefully talk about as mirrored years later with television and the boob tube. So for the NAB to, to establish that this actually is a significant medium that does tell stories that affect our citizenship was a, you know, a major thing. And it just happened to locate at the University of Georgia.
2: So Lorraine, uh, in the critical world, what is the status of the Peabody Awards? What role do you think it plays in people's perceptions of television?
3: This is the perfect time for the Peabody and television and what you would call radio or podcast, because radio and television are in a place where I would argue they are smarter and affecting more change than film is right now. And I think that's what the Peabody Award is about. I mean, I feel like when we're sitting in those judging sessions and when we're looking at, you know, what sets us apart as a Peabody winner, it is, you know, a different quality to it. It's a higher quality. It's, does it affect change? Does it kind of hit all these cultural notes? Does it have a wider cultural sort of uh breadth to it, and I think that's kind of the difference between a Peabody award and when you look at some of the other awards that are aimed at these mediums and Peabody just means more when you talk to somebody who's won a Peabody, it's like they have kind of proved themselves on an artistic level but also on a cultural level
1: so as the non peabody the non maybe I'll be a new Peabody but um one question is, you just mentioned invoked a bunch of different media over which that are included in the Peabody judging, right, as compared right. to other, the other awards you mentioned, right, which are kind of about television or about movies, right? This is spanning different um, ways of communicating. So that's one question that feels like it's really different for Peabody's. And second, this, the deliberative process, right, the, like the, the way that you do the judging that invokes the values that you just described. Um, which seems real different from at least my understanding from the outside of how the other awards work.
3: Yeah, I, I think it is. And you know, when you're, I mean, just as a critic, like the way that I do my job when I'm looking at something, you know, why do I like this? Why do I think this matters? You know, why does it stand out? Is it the content? Is it the subject matter? All those very things I'm looking at, I'm using that same criteria when I'm looking at some of the Peabody nominees, and. I think that's the difference. If I were, you know, on the Television Academy or whatever, you know, whatever it would be, the Grammys, we're not doing music. But I don't think I would be using that same criteria. There's a, there's a different criteria. So,
2: Marcy, as an industry person, what does the Peabody mean in your space?
4: We got one, oh, gosh, uh 1984 or 85. It's the only one we ever got. And it's the most precious award we ever got. I mean, for some reason that had some mystery about it, it was the most special, the most revered award on my end of the industry, if you're a producer of television. It was in, I remember we almost said it in whispers to each other, you know, we got a Peabody. What? Yeah, we did, we got a Peabody. It was, it had that kind of effect on us, and, and something about it bespoke the simplicity of purpose, its only purpose was to reward brilliant society changing maybe um certainly affecting an important you know storytelling and so you know to get a Peabody it was a, it was a kind of a, a stamp of approval that had nothing to do with audience popularity it had nothing to do with you know your relationship to other people in the industry or you know uh, it, it only had to do with quality and so it was uh, the most revered award we ever got
0: i would repeat a couple things that <laughs> um along this line in this conversation is to talk about how what it means, you know, we don't hand out a lot of Peabody Awards, and uh, and so they're they're very cherished, as Marcy said. Uh, Walter Cronkite once said, "You you count your Emmys, you cherish your Peabody's, and I think that speaks to what Marcy's saying in that you may only receive one in your lifetime, but it's not. Uh, about stacking your shelves with awards. The other thing to add is that uh, our mantra are stories that matter. And there's two key words there. Stories, that is, we're not a craft award. Uh, the, the, the award goes not for best directing or producing or acting but instead into the narrative, the story itself. And, and then what's matters? Uh, and that's a question that we're sometimes asked. You know, uh, the scholar Larry Grossberg talked about, we all possess different mattering maps in our head. That is, different things matter. But, you know, unless we're social Darwinists or unless we're Murdochians and Trumpians and we're really focused on our greed and avarice and self-importance and interest. It's it's definitely something uh, that appeals to us in our commonality and our humanity and the ways in which we believe that narratives and storytelling actually address that commonality. So unless you are from the world, I just said, you do care about the injustices or uh, um, power differentials or violence against other humans. And that's what the cross-genre, cross-platform ability of Peabody to enunciate, and that's probably why we find it important: is that uh, these are stories that are addressing that human condition and are asking viewers and listeners to, uh, to uh, you know, to offer up some level of uh, of, of of humanity in their in their uh, addressing them.
1: I and mean, as uh, as the non-expert in the room, that seems particularly well-suited to this moment in time as all these things change, as storytelling changes and TV gets infinitely more complicated and interwoven and you have the rise of podcasting and all the kind of cha- new forms emerging, whether based on the way that they're transmitted or, or, or consumed, and also just the storytelling itself. And so in that sense, it seems like some of these other awards might be kind of locked into old ways of, you know, are you this, in this category or that category, whereas you all have a lot more flexibility to decide, is that a story
0: that matters? And, and as storytellers take different chances and different narrative approaches, they can be cutting edge in new ways. So a good example would been Random Acts of Flyness, where Terrence Nance on HBO created these kind of comic vignettes that had all types of uh, different forms. Some, some seemed very theater, some seemed uh, co- uh, sketch comedy. Uh, so you could take a lot of things that way, but you can also see instances in which the form can look backwards. So Louis C.K.'s piece of Horace and Pete seemed like a Playhouse 90, or mm-hmm. the the Mars Patel podcast was ch- radio theater from the 1930s. So in this day, as you say, with the economy allowing for so many different forms of media to appear... Uh, and find their way in the market, in the public or commercial market, you're getting lots of different narratives that we're not locked in with other awards into strict categorization, and the Peabody board's process allows for us to kind of embrace that and say, now that's novel, or that's something we need to be paying attention to.
4: It's so funny. Jeff mentions a couple of projects. The mention of the project brings me right back into the room. I remember the discussion we all had (laughs) about those projects and the stimulating kind of like arguments and and, and not really uh, collegial arguments, wonderful arguments about whether and which um, deserves a Peabody. And what it comes down to for all of us is gut. What it comes down to is you have to almost as, well, I did it as a producer. I'm sure you do it as a critic. Mm -hmm. Lorraine, and Jeff, you do it too. You, you have to first be audience. You have to first, you know, look at a thing, read a thing, listen to a thing, whatever, that is, as an audience, you're not a producer, you're not a critic, you're not a professor, you're not anything except audience. Clean slate. And you listen to your gut before you listen to your head. Your head then, you know, chimes in, your heart chimes in, but it's the gut that that uh, is moved.
3: And you know, What's so funny is when you mentioned random acts of flyness, I think of the awards themselves and, you know, mingling with some of the people who had won the awards and Terrence Nance, we were talking and he said, I just want to know what was the conversation like when everybody was trying to figure out what random acts of flyness was about? <laughs> That's yeah. Hard. And I thought, well, I cannot divulge, that, divulge, I cannot divulge that as a judge, but it, you know, it was so great. I'm trying to like, piece together I'm really excited I'm really thrilled and I'm honored I won this what was that conversation like and I think that goes back to you also talking about kind of this mystery about it like how does this work how do you come to this because unlike other words also you know in the industry for other words there's campaigning there's like all the you know the billboards all the you know lobbying and this is not that right I mean this this acts This is completely different. So I think there is a mystery around it. But the other thing that you were talking about, Jeff, in terms of looking at things that affect change, I feel like the Peabody's is much more suited to keep up with how quickly television has changed and how quickly radio podcasts has changed. Those platforms had expanded so widely that we are seeing so much more creative uh, content out there, but we're also seeing a ton more diversity. We're seeing all these really important, impactful stories. And I think it's hard to, for other uh, award shows and other voting bodies to keep up with that. The Peabody seem much more uh, aimed towards that and able to keep up with that. And, and as a matter of fact, that's kind of what we're looking for.
1: So, can I pick up on that and ask you a question, yeah. Marcy. what is that so what is that? You, you talked about what it meant to receive a Peabody making mm-hmm. um, a show. but what is that what is that what are the dynamics that Lorraine just described mean for the industry and for what gets made or who makes it um, in terms of you know does that does that like help more sort of diverse forms of story or storytellers or does that like create more space?
4: I hope so. We all hope so. It's hard to actually have a definitive answer for that. Um, You don't know what impact anything has, really, that you do. You just know that what, well, we just feel, or we wouldn't put ourselves through this rather grueling process. We feel it's important. We feel it's important to award a Peabody, which is a a pure kind of quality and and what it does for society and how it moves us. Um, It's important to say this is special. And so whether that makes a huge impact or a little one, I really can't say.
2: So we've mentioned several times the room, and I think that's a big difference for Peabody. I, the other awards I participate in, we're voting, you know, asynchronously scattered across the place. We make our own snap judgment, which box the kit and go on. The room is an important part of this. So can you can we start to talk through what that process actually
0: looks like? Sure. Yeah, it it is truly the distinguishing uh, factor. It's a deliberative process. And by that, I mean, it is face to face, where 19 people are talking about the merits of the work. And because, um, well, I should mention who is in the room, it is an array of uh, uh, television producers, folks who journalists uh, who were on TV and made made news and journalism, Uh, it's television critics, it's scholars, Uh, so it's people that their lives have been dedicated to the production or study or critical analysis of media, and so everyone walks in with their own, uh, you know, uh, aptitude, if you will, and different perspective from where they were, so in the deliberative process, there is this really listening to your peers, And uh, you have to make your case for why something you think rises to the level of excellence, that it should win a Peabody Award. And that's not easy when you're in a room of other alphas and you're in a room of other very accomplished people uh, who know media well. Uh, And so I think that is what makes it special and also uh, special in terms of what we produce, but special in terms of how you arrive at that decision. Uh, most awards, as we say, the TV Academy has 25,000 members. It's a an anonymous thing. You don't know if they've even watched the shows. Uh, in Peabody Land, you can't vote against something if you haven't watched it. So we try to make sure that everyone uh, and, and this very long process that, that Marcy suggested it, it is hard and difficult, but we all try to watch it and then debate and discuss together.
4: That's the most fun. being in the room with, you know, 17 or 18 other people, all of whom are fantastic. A lot of them are funny as hell, thank God. (laughs) All of them are smart, and and they bring different perspectives and and skills and whatever and and backgrounds. But, damn, those discussions are the reason we do this.
0: And I, I really realize it's special when someone says, you know, you've changed my mind, or I didn't see that, but now I do.
3: That's it. I mean, you walk in there thinking, you know, I've got my mind made up. And really, in my job, like, my opinion is is everything, right? That is it. (laughs) That is my guiding light. And I walk in there thinking, I know. And I cover TV, and I walk out going, oh, my gosh. No, you did change my mind on that. I was resolute about it, and no, you changed it. And that is rare. That is really rare.
4: Yeah, it happens because of the mutual respect we
2: feel for each other. Right. And it, it's not just two, an afternoon in the room, right? We're talking more than a week's worth of time every year face-to-face over three sessions in three different cities where we talk to each other, we learn to trust each other's judgments on the easy calls, calls and then in the hard ones we really come come to bear. And we were at any given moment an advocate, a skeptic, a naive viewer, right? And the, flitting between those roles with people in the room, We talk about it. I remember a random act of flying us saying, you know, I'm up to black 101, but I'm not up to 201 and I need some expertise here. And having on call two really capable people who helped me to understand that show, you know, much better.
3: And there's something about the way that it it reminds me of 12 Angry Men because we are sequestered (laughs) in this room for a really long time and we are going to different cities to do this pulling ourselves out of our regular lives. It's not, you know, sitting at home and checking off a ballot. We are a weekend together, whatever it is, you know, three times. And there's something about that that um, strips away everything else that you are normally thinking about, you're distracted about, and sets you right in there, and, like, you're in it. You're invested in it. But the other thing is something like um, The Good Place. You know, when, when The Good Place came up and we were Going back and forth on that. As you were talking about the random acts of flyness and, you know, having somebody talk to you about that, I remember, you know, having these arguments about the good place. And I really was for it and pushing for it and really understood it. And that's a really, in a certain way, that was kind of a divisive show on television. It was a divisive show in that room. I don't get it. I don't get it, or I really do get it. And so it was one of those. Those shows where I was kind of surprised we were able to get everybody on one side because on television, there's many people who are just like, this is a blank space to me. So it was one of those great moments where I think debating really kind of opened it up and showed how smart and good this show was underneath being a network comedy.
0: Let me mention another show that I I think really calls out what makes Peabody different. And it was Beyonce's Lemonade. And oh. so the process that, the, that we're talking about here in deliberations is we're not comparing Beyonce's Lemonade to Adele or some other Drake or some other, uh, and which of these is the better music piece. Instead, you end up talking about Lemonade in terms of pain and redemption and family and history and community and the things that the artist is trying to articulate in their work. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, the deliberation is not, is this the best new album or video of the year? It is, was this a moving piece of material? And it gets talked about in those terms precisely of its power. Hmm. And I think that's what that deliberative uh, process draws out in the smorgasbord of we have all these different things. You don't talk about it was the best. It is the best in terms of its broader themes about humanity.
2: Well, I think about the moment when the games industry awarded Grand Theft Auto as the game of the year, right, in the midst of the controversy. And if you talk to anyone in the games industry, they said this was because it was technically such a huge breakthrough, they couldn't ignore it. But the question at the, at the stake for most of the general public responding to that award was, was this a game that mattered, right? Is, was this game about something? Did this game cause social good or social harm? And that mattering is the central question Peabody asked, right? So I doubt Grand Theft Auto would have won game of the year with the jury that we have. We, the questions would be different. And in asking those different questions, we expect something different from the medium itself.
0: And and the ability to interrogate your peers along those lines of inquiry. Is this an ethical piece? What, what does it do for us when we engage with something like that? Uh, that's the challenge to... Your other people. And then the last thing we should say about the process or or, or another thing is that it is a unanimous vote. So to win a Peabody Mm. Award, you have 19 people to say yes. And the first year I took over Peabody, there was a woman who won uh, for a documentary uh, on Al Jazeera about Israel and Palestine. And after the award show, we had a forum in which she said, if you can get that many people to unanimously agree on Israel-Palestine, you must be doing something right. And I thought that was a good way to get at that there's, when you can get people from different walks of life and, 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 and uh, sometimes even different ideologies still say that is a meaningful testament and story that we need to uh, to, to hear uh, and be engaged with, then, then, then you're doing the right thing.
4: So you're saying we should head
3: for the Middle East. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> which brings me to something from last year though because that was my first year you know on the judging board and um the judge is a documentary about a uh sharia court judge who is a woman and also this is in the occupied tor- territories in israel and she is palestinian she's the first of her kind Watching that, I realized what an amazing story it was, but also how um, incredible it was that they captured this in a film. That was something that I could bring to the Peabody table because I know that region, because I am Muslim, because I am Arab. And it was kind of a thing where maybe it, it might not have gotten overlooked, but it might not have gotten elevated the way it did if I hadn't seen it. And we have whatever it is, 17 other people around that table who are also picking things out. In other words, we all come from different backgrounds as well, and it's not just industry backgrounds. It can be in diversity. It can be in faith, whatever it is, race. And I think that matters. As much as it probably shouldn't, it does, because when you're watching something, you realize this story has not been told before. I know because I am from that world or because I'm looking for that, and I don't see it out there. And that's what makes the Peabody's different as well.
0: And I would, I would even add, thinking about that, if, if we want to think about what are pieces that we recognize that were some of the more special or important. You know, I'm a white boy from Alabama, but probably two of the awards that have won that, have, uh, that I'm so glad did would be Hasan Minhaj's uh, Homecoming King, a stand-up comedy special, and then Patriot Act. And he is an Indian-American Muslim, uh, of uh, definitely a different generation than me. But in both instances, he's advanced the form in a very poignant and moving way and uh, an intellectually stimulating way. And, and they're both different pieces. Uh, one, a stand-up comedy that really is about a memoir of growing up uh, of, of a brown skin in, in Davis or California and what that's like, uh, navigating the, the generation of his parents and expectations of Indian families while navigating a white world. And then with Patriot Act, really taking this entertainment journalism and, 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 and realizing that he's really broadcasting to 163 countries and the license to talk about Turkey or to about Venezuela or to talk about Saudi Arabia as a Muslim American and the power that he has there – so again, it's not me identifying with him as a white boy from Alabama. It's me identifying him as this is a fresh voice on the scene that needs to be here in this moment in time. And 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 glad that we get to highlight it because I'm sometimes surprised when I say, have you seen Patriot Act and people don't know what I'm talking about? So the ability for this 80-year-old cultural institution to highlight that and to foreground it and to put it on our television show Etc. Is, is a meaningful act. Saudi Arabia has been engulfed
1: in a massive diplomatic crisis over the gruesome killing of Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi.
2: Last week, the Saudis said it was an accident after a fist fight.
1: This is the most unbelievable cover story since Blake Shelton, won sexiest man alive. <laughs> Indians
0: can be awful in
1: every industry. Just look at John Kapoor. Prosecutors
2: say Kapoor helped devise a plan to bribe doctors into prescribing the potent opiate
1: to non-cancer patients. Kapoor is facing felony charges, including racketeering, mail fraud, wire fraud, and conspiracy. I love how he didn't stop at just one type of fraud. He got all the frauds. That's the prison equivalent of taking the MCAT and the GMAT.
2: So, Marcy, what shows have you been most proud of over the time you've been on the board? That we won? Yes. that,
4: That we gave an award to? You know, it's funny. On the way over here, I was thinking about such stuff, and the the things that kept popping into my mind were the odd, the the uh, the short things, the things that really didn't have a standard form, like the. Uh, oh, that, remember those the the women sportscasters? Oh
0: yeah, it was called more than mean and
4: more than mean, yeah. and and you want to describe it? Well, it was very simply done. It was just a blank stage, a couple of chairs, and. Random guys with baseball hats on backwards, whatever, were brought in off the streets and and they were asked, "Are you willing to do this kind of thing we're doing?" And the thing we're doing is we're asking men to read um, tweets,
0: the mean tweets that these the mean
4: tweets that other men have written criticizing and and
0: trolling demonizing
4: <laughs> and trolling these women sports people, you know right. um women in sports, sports casters these these men could not get the words out they were reading face to face trying to read these awful well, things yeah, that were written
0: i'm going to kill you yeah, or oh, i want to hit you in the head with awful. a hockey puck and...
4: and they they said i'm sorry oh, i'm sorry i can't do it one was crying i mean it was i can't do it it was just such a beautiful short effective illustration of how we talk to each other when we're anonymous Versus how we talk to each other when we're in the same place together. It, it it was stunning and moving, very short and very odd, but wonderful.
1: I'd like to start a petition for a ban on all links to Julie DeCaro's Twitter feed. <laughs> okay. Hi. Okay, Sarah.
0: Hi. Sarah. Sarah. All right, you ready to do some mean tweets? I'm ready. Sarah Spain sounds like a nagging wife on TV today.
3: Not even married yet.
1: (laughs) Julie DeCaro is a run-of-the-mill, mediocre beat writer. Not atrocious,
2: not
0: good. Just
2: sort of there.
0: I'm actually not a beat writer at all, but okay.
2: (laughs) Sarah Spain is just a scrub muffin? I don't even know what a scrub muffin is. I don't either.
1: I love muffins. One of the players should beat you to death with their hockey stick like the whore you are.
0: I'm just reading this.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> when I look back at Steven Universe, right, which was we've struggled through the years to for Peabody to recognize children's media. It's an important function Peabody plays to call out stories that parents might want to ex- have their children engage with. And partially the challenge is not all the people in the room have kids and aren't necessarily immersed in that world. We've struggled even more with youth media, right, because that falls between the cracks. And Steven Universe is such an important show for kids, kids of both teen, especially young people. Uh, shortly after we gave this award for what I, one of my students, Joan, describes as a superhero show, where the superpower is empathy. Uh, we, the, Rebecca Sugar spoke at USC. There was a room full of, you know, 20-somethings with purple hair and green hair and bubblegum-colored hair all gathered there and just collectively weeping in response to what Rebecca Sugar had to say and the intensity of their engagement with um, with the Steven Universe. And when she announced it had won a Peabody, there was just half the people in the room said, what's a Peabody? But the other half just were so proud that something that mattered that much to them was being recognized by this, by this organization. And, you know, it took some advocacy on multiple people's part to get it there, but I think it was more than worth it to to have that recognition out there.
3: So many of us in this room are marginalized individuals who have fought to tell our stories. To you, I would like to make a case for animation as a force for change. Uh, Animation has its roots in magic. It's an illusion that works because we want to empathize. It's an impulse that's so strong that we can even empathize with drawings. To create cartoons based on our experiences is to speak directly to that impulse and say, we deserve your care. Henry,
4: let me just say, did everything except lock the doors to the room. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody leaves until we give this show a pee <laughs>
3: And the fact, I have a teenage son, and I was like, yeah, I don't really get this. And Henry, it took you to explain it to me. It's like, this is brilliant. <laughs> And nobody leaves the room. No, nobody leaves the room. There was that Well, Sometimes we have to fight each other hard, but I think yeah. we make,
2: you know, at the end of the day, when I look at what gets the award, we all advocate for things that get shot down. We all lose battles in the room, and it's easy to look at what lost, but if you look at what won and you feel a collective sense of pride and what we've given the award to, that's what makes the whole process worthwhile, and it does take over your life for three months, more or less. <laughs> it does. Uh, but at the end of those three months, we're recognizing things that I think do are stories that matter. And the award matters because of that.
0: One of the things that we're very proud of, and I try to um, reiterate in a town like Los Angeles, where there's so many awards, Producers Guild, Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, that one of the defining things that happens, and I don't know if it's intentional or a product of the process, is we do recognize emerging voices and diverse voices. And I'll give several examples. Emerging voices is is Peabody is often the first and sometimes the only award to recognize the Issa Rays, the Terrence Nance, the, the Donald Glover's, the Aziz Ansari's and Hassan Minaj's, people that the television academy aren't watching and have a tough time wrapping their head around. And what we find is those are often people from marginalized communities who've, for whatever reason, been given the opportunity to be on the airwaves, and we get to recognize that. The other is Peabody doesn't suffer from what is really happening so much across repeatedly all the other awards, BAFTA, Grammys, Oscars, Emmys, uh, In the Oscar so white world. is Peabody's a very diverse, uh, 60% of our awards last year, 55 the year before, 53. Three the year before, would be considered diverse in terms of LGBTQ representation, uh, race and ethnicity, uh, and gender. And so uh, we don't seem to have that problem. And again, I think it probably emerges from a very diverse board, but also that process of deliberation, saying that these are the stories we want to recognize. I
2: have to say, as someone trained in cultural studies, where we're meant to be skeptical of cultural hierarchies. The challenge of saying, now what does quality television look like was a really daunting one when I first entered the board. Right. I know Lorraine, your world's the exact opposite, <laughs> but we tend not to cast judgments but try to contextualize things. So for the academics, it's often a challenge to suspend our sus- our suspension of judgment to become judges again and to think through that process. So that's one side of I it. And mean, the other is I think general public was trained not to think of television. Is having quality at all, you know? Newton Meno, who ironically was a board member of Peabody in his era, ta- coined that term "vast wasteland," which has done television no service through the years and leads to the idiot box, the, the plug-in drug, all of these other things that get said about television. I mean, I used to wear a little button that said "I love TV." And people would look at it and try to figure out what TV stood for, because the idea that I was saying I love television was hard for them to grasp. And so they had really convoluted attempts to figure out what TV stood for on that button. But we're now, at a, you know, we're now in a moment where we talk about an era of too much TV or peak TV. We're now the challenge is there's so much quality carving that down to the 30 recipients and 30 finalists that Peabody recognizes every year, I think is a challenge but it means we've got to articulate a variety of different notions of qualities of television not what quality tv looks like because 30 different winners there are 30 different ideas about what quality is at the end of the day
0: yeah you know that is such a a debate uh, really in society at large but in the academy of of you know this battle of of a medium that has largely uh, for much of its run been about mass market Lowest common denominator programming, kind of pablum, but always has always had uh, narratives that are challenging in their era. And as the political economy of television has changed and we are more in a, a subscription, you know, pay per view, as Oscar Gandhi once said, uh, world and all that, the problems they're with, there are more uh, richer narratives. That do things uh, that you know really challenge viewers in a multiplicity of ways, uh, but the Academy still wants to always bring up social class and the debates therewith. I would just argue that those debates have always been present in, in television, uh, and 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 that there's always been quality. We just happen to be in a moment where uh, uh, really the form can push. Uh, further than it ever has, because of the economics of the industry. So, a show that we will be talking about soon, uh, but it is one that society should be talking about is Watchmen. You know, mm-hmm. it's a show that really is pushing on the viewer and, and and pushing on the form of storytelling in all kinds of ways. And and that's, of course, what makes. Uh, you know, j- uh, jobs like Henry and I have fun, is we get to talk with students and even our colleagues about what is the form of narrative in this specific medium doing that that challenges narrative and what we understand it to be and in the middle of all that dealing with some profound social issues.
3: And television can pivot much faster to sort of respond to cultural movements and therefore can also hop ahead a little faster to lead them, Right. So, you know, when we're talking about awarding stories that matter, stories that make change, stories that affect change, television's in a great place right now, and being able to sit down on, with the Peabody judges and look at that right now, yes, it's a fire hose of content. There's a ton of stuff, but it is an exciting, exciting era, and I think that's where the most fiery arguments, debates, friendly, always, of course, happen. <laughs> oh, always. <laughs> So when,
4: Although there have been late-night discussions over wine, <laughs> that yes. got a little loud. <laughs> yeah, as, as
2: as we were getting ready to f- next round of things, and we're cramming in, watching all this incredible stuff. I've been, I grumble about it, and I, my wife will say, "You know, think about this is like swimming in a vat of chocolate." Yes, and I <laughs> and I say, "But it's also like being asked to drink it all before <laughs> next weekend." <laughs> And it that sort of captures the way in which we engage with this content. It's like drinking a whole vat of chocolate, which is all wonderful in preparation for the discussion the following week. It's true. And by the time we get to Athens, we're trying really hard to see things each night before we collapse to get ready to discuss the final finalist as we went on it down to things. We had yeah, to, to play see. with
0: the metaphor to get down to 30. You're also going on a hard diet. Yes. <laughs>
3: That's right. Yep.
2: So, one of the things that I've observed in the time on the board, I was there the first year when Serial got recognized as the first podcast. And I think last year may have been the first year that none of the radio winners were radio. They were all podcast. Mm. So this is one of those growth areas that we've traced certainly on our, our podcast, naturally. We're interested in state of podcast. So how do we think about podcasts today and, and, as a Peabody group? I know I, we struggled at some points to differentiate the aesthetics of podcast and radio in our early discussions so people understood how they were different. But any thoughts about the state of podcasting? I go back to, you know, good is good.
4: Excellent is excellent. Um, it, it kind of is a continuum. Podcast, television, whatever. If it moves you, if it gets to you, if it makes you think about it days later, that's what counts.
0: I used to assign students uh, a reading about podcasting is different in Europe and Britain from the U.S. and the U.S. was sometimes called a chumcast, where you're supposed to be, you know, buddies with the viewer, or that that uh, British podcasting made you lean in, where uh, American podcasts you could lean back, if you will. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I think what we get to see a lot of is is um, because the economies and distribution of the form, uh, you're getting, uh, you know, different approaches to narrative and the availability that the gatekeepers aren't as mm. present. You know, I mean, if you think about, I mean, this this would be a whole nother podcast uh, for your show that I'd love to talk about, but the history of radio, you do have to think about. Um, What has happened in commercial space and what's happening in public media space and even public media, while we like to think it's expansive, it's extremely constricting in what it would allow and uh, and the formats that could exist and the time and the sponsorship and all that stuff. So podcasting unleashes so much of that. It allows for people like us to sit in an educational institution and do this. Uh, with whatever narrative approaches we want to do or narrative strategies, if you will, for telling stories in really different ways. And so I think one of the things to your question, Henry, is the Peabody board seems excited by what will we discover this year? Uh, You know, let's think about Ear Hustle, which uh, I can't remember if it's won a Peabody. I know it's been a nominee, but it is prisoners doing a podcast from a prison. You know uh, that's different. <laughs> you haven't necessarily heard now whether you like that or not. It's definitely something that is not going to often pass the gatekeepers of national public radio. So that that's the kind of excitement we get every year: is what what's out there? Ooh, that's interesting. Let's check that out. And 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 for me, this trend of podcasting just opens new narrative vistas that 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 I wasn't expecting when I took this job six years ago.
3: I also think with podcasting, you know, much like television let's say even eight years ago seven years ago there's that wild west aspect to it Mm -hmm. you know remember when netflix first came along and you're oh there's a crowded queue of stuff where do i go what do i do podcasting in a certain way feels like that and what i love about going through all this as a peabody judge but also when you know we announce the winners is that it curates things for people to go to you know what what do i do what do i watch what do i listen to when you see it on that list, when you see it on that list of winners, it's like, okay, I have a guide. That's right.
2: We're also seeing this explosion of documentaries during the time that I've, I've been working with you guys. I were, so how, how many documentaries do we get this year? Do you?
0: It's usually the largest category. It's hard to say, but I would say we get over 300, uh, which is quite a lot of documentaries. Um, we have 11 screening committees so it's it's probably about 350 documentaries but yeah as uh, you know for so long documentary production was generally limited to pu- public media and hbo did a great job but now with the fact that hulu and showtime and uh, netflix and apple uh, plus and uh, you know other streamers are putting Amazon or putting out a uh, documentary, we really are seeing this explosion uh, of, of the form and often extremely compelling.
1: And is there, what's the reasoning behind that? Is that just that there's an, I mean, because of the past the the joke about documentaries was that, you know, 50,000 people maybe saw them. Um, so it's surprising that there's so much investment. I mean, is it, Lower cost is it? Is an appetite for it? The world's complicated. It's
0: my understanding because I do engage with the industry and some of its leaders is appetite. Uh, it's a good way to fill out their, uh, it, it, you know, really a lot of the things you said. Cost is one, but there, I think what uh, I believe because I, I taught documentary for ten years is. I used to have the feeling you did that oh this is for a certain for the slice, converted, yeah right? of, of the public I think uh, what I've been surprised when I talk to the the guys who run the networks that sit on a, an advisory board we have is that they' they are popular people actually do want that slice of real life and are uh, you know and, and, and you know some of them are the celebrity vehicle uh, type of thing which are interesting but some are also really deep dives into to social issues and, and that the public actually likes it more than maybe we thought as yeah. scholars.
4: Also, you're right. The world is damn complicated and people, you know, crave, I think, trying to figure it out.
1: I mean, in the contrast from, you know, sort of mainstream news media, which treats things in you know, small bites to get into a topic that's super complex and interwoven and yeah. um, specialized, you, you need more time and yeah. more expertise. Right?
0: The, the, the documentarian, I mean, a, a scholar named William Stott wrote a book about documentary expression in the 1930s, which encompassed, of course, radio, but also things like theater uh but he uses reportage as the word yeah. and documentary was very powerful and i like that because we we as citizens do realize the limitations of the short form news piece on mm. cnn or where have you and i do think we want to figure it out and we do appreciate that long form reportage uh offers that kind of real life uh deep dive um uh, as per that format, so I, I agree very much with Marcy. We do want to wrestle th- with things unless we're the Murdochs and the Trumps of the world.
3: Um, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I think also because of accessibility now. I mean, you can watch documentary series, you can watch docu series documentaries yeah. on TV, right? You can watch them on any platform. They're cut up in ways where you can watch them over four or five, you know, episodes. Um, and also, I think that, yes, the world is a complicated place, but I think the idea was a documentary used to be kind of like this high-minded, art house, academic thing that wasn't for the rest of the people. And I love the idea that it's like, no, actually, it, it works for the rest. The rest of people want to see this, and they are seeing it. So I, I think it's really, it's more accessibility. Yeah. Um, and when you look at something like, oh, I was thinking of oh like the Lorraine Hansberry documentary or Jazz Ambassadors or something that's also dealing with historical um, stories that are really topical and poignant today, that matters. And people like to know, like, this is not the only time this has ever happened. It's not Mm -hmm. the only time we've dealt with these race issues or, you know, whatever it is, corrupt government. And I think the idea of being able to go back and look at what ties us to history and documentaries do that.
0: But the you really make a good point about because uh, Henry, I know we, we're interested in the trends in the marketplace is the multi-part documentary now is very standard across a lot of these new streamers and and that's significant. I mean it was it was the one-offs or the hour, right. or Ken Burns had 19 hours. <laughs> but now, you know you will get uh, the ability to look at R Kelly. Uh, over you know, or OJ over so many episodes, and Finding that's Neverland, become learned, or Living yeah, Neverland*. Yeah, and that's yeah. become a, a a popular kind of. Oh, it's not serialized, but ever five, four to six episodes, it, it really does give you the bandwidth to do a deeper dive on something. Yeah.
4: Also, the documentaries are can be so much, well, equally as or more moving than drama than scripted drama. I mean, it's just. I was at Sundance this year, and uh, there was a documentary that there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was just, it was so impactful and emotionally uh, uh, just just effective. It it was uh, amazing. The audience reacted
2: as one.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> well, as we wind things down, Jeff just anticipated my, my final question, which is, We've just sucked a year's worth of television into our head and are trying to hold it there at once. Uh, You should see their heads. Uh, You just did. I've been doing this all year. You've got a lot of advantages. I watch entertainment all year, but the docs are something that I have to cram for like a big exam. So what are we seeing as trends that may not be reflected necessarily in this year's awards, but we are anticipating becoming a bigger deal? Uh, as we move forward, I mean, I'm looking at foreign TV or inter- what we used to call foreign TV. I guess it's international TV today. And we're seeing every year a little more Israeli drama, Danish mysteries, uh, Indian uh, melodramas, Latin American drug dramas, all kinds of th- Malaysian documentary work all bubbling forth in part because of Netflix and the way it scrambles the content around the world, But I think we're going to see more and more have to grapple with a global perspective for Peabody, which has always been there, but has sort of been a little haphazard, I think, historically, but needs to be more central.
3: You're saying the world is getting smaller, aren't you, Henry?
2: Or at least they're all looking at small small boxes, yeah. and small screens.
3: <laughs> they're all using the same platforms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For sure. Well, what- I mean, if you look at something like Our Boys and HBO – you know that was one of their first series that's it's hebrew and arabic it's not a, it's totally in subtitles that's a drama and that was a a very that was a promoted uh what would you say that was like a premiere hbo series and that is something that's changing you wouldn't have seen that you know even 3 years ago 4 years ago
0: what we're seeing certainly again as streamers are uh moving forward uh, more strongly with documentary or art, just emphasis on different things. So we are getting historical, uh, pieces that are a little different. So revisiting OJ who is a great example that did win a Peabody. You're getting, uh, sometimes a celebrity, if you will, producers like Selena Gomez, who's doing a multi-part series on immigration. You're getting, um, you know, pieces on abuse, as we've said with R. Kelly, but but others, or a return to L- Lorena Bobbitt, for instance, was one. Now, I'm not saying any of these are Peabody winners, but the trends in the is you're getting and you're getting more celebrity pieces. So, a documentary on, say, Steven Spielberg, um, and and so you're just getting a broader array than public television or just the the work that Sheila did, Sheila Evans at at HBO. And, and i think that's good for the documentary forum and it's interesting i don't know how many owp bodies but but you are getting a a different array of things that are appearing in the documentary space across these streamers do you, i mean do you think in general
1: that Television is becoming, or television and and radio, podcasting, all these medium that the stories are becoming consciously more connected to what's happening in the world, as opposed to. I mean, is there is the needle shifting from if you if you put on a spectrum from like stuff that matters to entertainment, is, for example, it, has it moved, or is it just that there's more volume and so there's lots of good stuff at the s- stories that matter end, or do you think things are actually moving towards you know the interest in and embracing the complexity of the world and trying to
4: I think one answer to that has to be the change in the business model. Um, what network television had to, had to attract millions of viewers to one show. Right. That was their business model. The advertising dollars came in heftier if millions more people watched a show. That was limiting in an, in an odd way. It was limiting because now you can have niche audiences – you know, that, that, that make a Netflix or an a- HBO, you know, that put, put, you on, put them on the map. Um, you don't need 40, 50 million p- people to watch a, a show. <laughs> you know, and so that frees up yeah. what you can talk about, how you entertain, how you get serious, how, you know, what, what kinds of uh, uh, programming you can do. It, it affects everything.
3: And stuff that matters in entertainment are the same thing now. No, there isn't, and I and I do think that were two different paths at one point, and they've collided. And I do think that you know what we're watching now and what we're seeing now, just even in terms of dramas, and I'm not even talking documentaries, are certainly more topical in comedies as well. Are mm-hmm. certainly more topical. If you looked at what Handmaid's Tale did, or if you look at Fleabag now, those are all you know looking at different aspects of what's happening with women, or what's happening in terms of how the government's seeing women, or whatever that is. Um, And I think, I almost think it's inescapable. I mean, you want to escape watch, you know, watching something like Game of Thrones at one point, but you couldn't help but see the politics in that and, you know, the, the race for the throne and the cutthroat. So I think it's really in everything that we're watching. And it's kind of inevitable. It's inescapable. So what is the role of Peabody in that world, Jeff?
0: Explain what you... you Well, I
2: mean, you've described a world where there's more diversity for narrower audiences and more more integration of topicality and entertainment. Does the job of Peabody matter all the more as we need to call attention from one community, a show that matters over here, to an audience over there that might not encounter it at all uh, compared to a three-network era where we'd all more or less know what was on television, even if... uh, you know, even if we didn't watch everything,
0: you know, it's, it's, we exist in the fire hose and we are a critical body. So, you know, if you think about who uh, recommends, and no disrespect to Lorraine, I mean, TV critics have a singular voice. And they, they are largely those. <laughs> wow. Those, if you can see her <laughs> expression, let me just. <laughs> those who are, that we're most engaged with. In Lorraine a criti- just walked out of the room. Insert <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, door They're him. the ones that we're most critically engaged with in terms of helping guide us toward, uh, you know, what to what to drink from in the fire hose. So this board, with somewhat the same critical analysis going on, but but spread a little wider to bring in academics and producers and journalists and others, um, you know. It's it, we we are trying to call out in that fire hose what what are the things that we as a society should be talking about and paying attention to, precisely because some of the greatest public intellectuals of our day are working in television, not writing for Paris Review. So I think that's our role at the at the show. If it's diverse, that's great. If it's emerging voices, great. But generally, at the end of the day, these are stories or narratives that we think should shape how we think about our world. And that's what I think the board does a good job of. So, Jeff, amidst all these
1: changes in the media and storytelling, there's also a change for Peabody
0: in that you're coming
1: to Los Angeles for the Peabody Awards. What does that mean?
0: It it means that for 80 years, uh, we were where broadcasting began, New York City. Uh, and, uh, as we moved from radio to TV, it was still New York city, but really, uh, in the 1950s sixties, um, you eventually get this shift, uh, to the center of the world's content creation now, which is California and with the streamers, Northern Cal and Southern Cal have, uh, have somewhat come together. And so for Peabody, the ability to be in this uh, space to to show people on a Thursday night work night that this is what these awards are and what they stand for, I think brings greater attention f- to the creative community of, of what we are and what we stand for and that we're not just another award. Uh, you know, the, the ceremony itself, as has been said, is extremely moving and powerful. It, 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 and, and the paradox, of course, is that you might be crying but yet somehow feel hopeful that storytellers are, 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 are addressing these issues. And so to experience that moves it away from what can be, in other instances, somewhat of a vanity award or things of a good job in your, your craft. But w- what about what you're doing to try to speak to the human condition? And so to have it in L.A. lets that, that creative community uh, experience that. And 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 have a firmer understanding of what the award is and why it matters.
3: Rita Moreno's acceptance speech last year was such a great example of, you know, it was not a vanity award. It was an award for incredible lifetime achievement, but her struggle and coming from the outside and coming to the inside, to the top of her game, and also affecting all this change, it was all wrapped up in that one speech, and people were crying at that ceremony when she spoke, Absolutely. but it was also so inspiring.
4: I have never missed my mother so much. I'm, I'm very honored to accept this <clears throat> career achievement from such an esteemed organization. I am. I didn't expect this i am keenly aware of the high value of that the peabody places on, on storytelling <clears throat> and i am i am so humbled that you consider the story of my life and career worthy
2: well on that note we should say goodbye but thanks everyone for joining us today it's been a great discussion thank you thank,
0: thank you, you
1: all
4: I- thank you henry and colin
1: so henry it was so great to have your p buddies in the studio as you know i've been talking to jeff um off and on about uh the peabody awards for quite some time and so it's just like a thrill to and and hearing it from you and so it's like a thrill to just be there and be processing with y'all um i really enjoyed it and as i was like sort of digesting and re-listening to the episode i um I, I, what stood out to me was first the, the focus, sort of the mission of the Peabody's as um, stories that matter, not, you know, um, media type or format or craft, but really just like about the story, the way it impacts us. The way that the team of judges has been composed, this really diverse group in the sense of area practice and sector and what they focus on and everything, um, as a, a, a unique resource as compared to other awards. The process, so rather than voting in isolation and not having reviewed material or whatever, this deliberative, interactive, personal, ongoing, like you have relationships that you develop um, that allow uh, for real kind of learning, and, as we heard. And then finally, the culture around it, this kind of orientation towards not just great stories, but also discovery. And being open to new mediums um, and new storytellers and so on, That, that sort of overarching culture that permeates the team and the awards. And so for me, like the way those all fit together in a pretty, what feels like a unique way as far as awards go and also a really powerful way.
2: Yeah, I think that's some of the things that inspire me about being part of this process. If you go back in history, Peabody started giving awards for television in 1949. If you know your television history, that's incredibly early in the history of the medium. So when television was a new medium, Peabody was already there, and Peabody continues to push outward to explore new media, new forms, new genres, new delivery modes, new artists, and that that I think is part of what excites me about it. The other thing that we didn't really talk about is that there's not this cultural hierarchy, that pop culture texts are often recognized by Peabody alongside sort of traditionally defined quality television. Uh, science fiction has been recognized throughout much of the history of the Peabody Awards, for example, I think they missed Twilight Zone back in the '50s, but they were on top of Star Trek and Doctor Who and some of these other things along uh-huh. the way. So as a fan, the early recognition of of pop culture, my genres by the Peabody Awards put them on my radar at a fairly young age, and so I was so moved to be asked to be on the board and unfortunately. This is my last year. I'm being term limited off. They, you, they have a, a six-year term, and then we leave. But that's to allow new, new perspectives and new voices to enter that room and play an active role. Ironically, having just described this intimate process within the room, the next phase of Peabody is now going to be on Zoom like everything else in our culture. So we're yeah. going to figure out how to bring those diverse people together across geographic distances. Uh, in order to find a new process. to But I think the fact that all these people are thinking about innovation, we're going to innovate along the way in that uh, process.
1: And that, indeed, we have the, you know, we kind of face the same challenge here with this show, right? Um, So I'm excited. uh, I can't say I'm excited in any way about COVID-19 and the havoc it's causing in our worlds. But I do, you know, as an optimist, I am looking forward to the, you know, forced opportunity for experimentation and for shaking our stuff up. So, um, you know, this recording remotely isn't, you know, this is like so innovative for us, but as we look to the weeks and probably months ahead, I'm excited to see how we can mix up the show and hopefully find ways to bring listeners in more actively, but also, you know, just uh, challenge ourselves to to try to do some new things.
2: So yeah, we're all practicing social distancing. In fact, I think we should sit six feet away from our computers while we're using (laughs) Zoom, given how much uh, Zoom forces us into each other's faces. But, you know, seriously, social isolation um, is the wrong word, I think, we've, or maybe ironic word, because, you know, we were just talking the other week about online community, and many people fear that computers isolate us, but in this current context... They're what keeps us in contact with each other. It's what brings us together. So we will explore yet again the potential of online community in that regard. And I yeah. want to remind listeners that, you know, podcasts are incredibly intimate. We're right there in your earbud. But that shouldn't worry you. I don't think you can get contaminated or infected through your earbuds. So just keep listening.
1: So only with ideas. So only with ideas. Yes, uh, I'll fill you with ideas.
2: There's no germs.
1: Henry, it is a pleasure as always to be, well, it's always a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be practicing social distancing with you in this way. And, you know, I'm really, um, in a weird way, looking forward to seeing what we can come up with in these uh, these shows ahead.
2: It's gonna be an interesting process. We're coming to you from Studio B. At the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California.
1: Um, we are especially fortunate to have amazing producers Josh Chang, Lena Bisse, and Sophie Maggi.
2: And we benefit enormously from the support of the MacArthur Foundation.